Hey there, welcome to the Everyday Marksman, the podcast where it's all about tactical skills for living a more adventurous life. I'm your host, Matt Robertson. Our website is everydaymarksman.co. There you're going to find today's show notes as well as our awesome community of marksmen, articles, blog posts, and everything else we got going on. Today's episode is not a traditional podcast episode because this is the audio recording of a recent live stream that I did with Ilya, the Dark Lord of Optics. And the topic is prism scopes. I've been on a bit of a rant lately talking about prism optics, why I think they're due for a comeback. And as I've been writing about these articles or writing about these topics, I realized there was a lot of things that I didn't quite understand. So why not go talk to the optical physicist that I know and do it with a live audience? So before I kick you over to the recording, uh, realize that this was done live on YouTube, so I totally invite you to come subscribe to the channel so you can do these live streams in the future. You're going to hear us referencing um, some some pictures and things we're holding up as well as people who are in the audience interacting with us live, asking questions. Um, I did try to be very careful about describing what we were doing and seeing, knowing that I was going to make an audio recording of this for you. So with that said, uh, no further ado, let's get over to the episode. Thanks for listening. All right. Good evening and welcome to the Everyday Marksman. As always, I am Matt, your host, and welcome to the show. Tonight's topic is about prism optics. So for those of you who might have been reading the blog lately, uh, you know that this has been a topic I've been writing about, chatting about within my uh, Discord server. So if you subscribe on the webpage, everydaymarksman.co, you'll go ahead and get access to the Discord. All right. So prism optics. So I am not an optical expert, um, but I do happen to know one. So Ilya, the Dark Lord of Optics, is here joining me tonight. He is in, waiting in the wings. I'll bring him on in a second. So I want to lay out my initial theory first about why I'm talking about prism optics. So bottom line is that there's been a lot of conversations lately around LPVOs matched with offset red dots. And I do think this is a great combination. I noticed this trend where there's a lot of users military competitive shooters alike who are running one to six, one to eight, one to 10 optics with an offset red dot. And they're never actually putting that, that magnification down. Like they're leaving it at four X or six X or eight X and just using the offset red dot for up close. Uh, Jeff Gerwich talked about this a lot and it kind of gave me this idea that maybe we're missing something. We could save ourselves, you know, a pound or more if we went to use more compact prism optics, again, paired with those offset red dots. And that might work really well for a lot of people. So we're going to explore this concept a bit more over time. But uh, tonight, I actually have a lot of questions for Ilya, because as I'm writing more articles about this, I actually have a lot of questions about how prism optics actually work. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and welcome Ilya. And good evening. And if anybody forgot my name, it's on a t-shirt. It's uh, good to be here again. I think uh, last time I was... When your show was your first show, wasn't it? It, it was. No, <laughs> you did too. You were on my very oh, first one. Or like oh, yeah. And, and then I did the one where I disagreed with Jeff. Yeah. 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 And, we're, we're... and just to be clear, I have the greatest respect for Jeff Gurridge. And I only feel comfortable disagreeing with him because I'm in New Mexico and he's in North Carolina. And it's too far for him to make the trip and keep my ass. <laughs> <laughs> True. So, Ilya, I mean, you, you really require no introduction here. But uh, if, for people who don't know, if I get this right, you have your by trade an optical physicist and got yourself into precision shooting a while ago and you kind of brought that passion in rifle scopes and built it up that way, building up quite the reputation for 
giving the honest truth to people about how optics work and how most people really have no idea what they're talking about. Does that sound about right? Uh, pretty, yeah, if you if I can't curse here, yeah, that's about as <laughs> All right, good. I, I don't know if this is a PG or rated R show, so. I, I, I try to keep it family-friendly-ish. Ish. Okay, all right. So come on my show. That's rated R. <laughs> that works. That works. All right. So um, prism optics. Now, a lot of people, just to lay this out right, a lot of people don't always realize that prism optics appear in a lot of things. So for instance, I got a set of binoculars in front of me. Uh, and this is where I think a lot of people probably have their first exposure. Is it something like a pair of these are 8 by 42 optics do run dual prisms or well, prism in each side of this thing? And I believe the turs is roof prism, which we're going to talk about today. Does that sound about right to you? Yes, it is. So um, the first step when I get into that, so I, I came prepared tonight with some slides. This is not a death, death by PowerPoint kind of, kind of stream, but I thought it would help to have some visual reference. And I'm going to be posting this on, by the way, as a podcast episode. So for people who can't actually watch this as we're doing it, you have to visualize what we're, what we're talking about here. Uh, but prism optics. So here we go. I have a couple of questions for you right off the bat. So telescopes. Um, I am a bit of an astronomy nerd, but I don't actually know a whole lot about how telescopes work. So my, my basic understanding here is that using my binoculars as an example, you've got an objective lens towards the front, and then you have some amount of space in there where the light will converge. That's the refraction piece of this. So if we're looking at my, my, uh, Antigraphic here, let me bring up a little laser pointer. So that's the lens. Then you have this convergence. That's the refraction piece of this where the light comes in. And then at some point it flips around and then you have another, another lens, you know, and this might be at the rear where that will start correcting and actually magnify onto some piece of this light. And that's basically where magnification comes from. So tell me, tell me if I got no, that right. The core of it. Yes, that is accurate. Okay, good. So, so we're, we're, we're tracking pretty well there. So, and then building on this, then thinking about something like a variable optic or low power variable, I can see from the graphic here, you know, that magnification is this F. So this is your, your focal distance divided by the little F, which is focal distance of the eyepiece. But the, the bottom line I want to get to here is when I'm looking at something like this, it would make sense to me then that a variable optic is this intersection point. You can slide that around. If you slide it forward, you effectively lower your magnification. If you slide it to the rear, you increase it. Does that sound right? Uh, depends on what you mean by slide it. So if you can move it, like adjust where that intersection is. So yeah, are you talking, uh, I mean, with optics, you can't just move stuff. That's, it stops working if you just move stuff. Um, the focal length of an optic is sort of an intrinsic characteristic, right? You can have a variable focal length on one of these right? For example, an objective. If you have a variable focal length on the objective, right? Uh, then uh, as you change the focal length of the objective, magnification changes. Magnification is a ratio of focal lengths. When you want to talk about, uh, let's say for photography, uh, this, for example, is a very small uh, zoom lens. It's a little micro four thirds lens. And when I, uh, or, let's see if I can, if I would, if I rotate it, it moves a little bit, and that actually changes the focal length of this thing. But what it does, it does not change where the focal spot is, right? So in a multi-element lens, 
like a photographic lens, sometimes the zoom is completely internal, meaning that some pieces inside move, but where it creates an image, meaning the focal point, that's your convergence point, that physically does not change. Okay. okay. So you're kind of on it. Uh, kind of. But, uh, but, but, but not exactly. Um, In practical terms, if you talk about telescopes or uh, spotting scopes, if you wish, the way a spotting scope, normal conventional spotting scope works, there are also multiple types, you know, you notice that when they talk about variable magnifications, always on the eyepiece, mm -hmm. because you're actually changing the focal length of the eyepiece. When you rotate on the eyepiece, there are two adjustments. One is the eyepiece focus, and another one is the magnification. Magnification just changes the fo effective focal length of the eyepiece, and that's how you change okay. magnification. When it's shorter, you have more magnification. When it's longer, you have less magnification. Okay. So I'm following so far. So I actually, we're going to the next piece here, because this shows a rifle scope. So, uh, mm -hmm. This is an example of a rifle scope. This is my, my PX4, uh, Steiner PX4. So this is a 4 to 16, which I assume looks basically like this slide on the inside of it. So I've got my oh, objective lens. Probably a lot lens. more complicated than this slide. Probably a lot more, yes. I, I actually saw, I was watching, as I was getting ready for this, I was watching a bunch of videos from Burris and Night Force. They've done cutaways of things. I'm like, there's a lot more going on. But Yeah. But, I have a nice diagram I pilfered off of uh, Hensold scope mm -hmm. manual some years ago that actually shows the actual number of pieces just objective lens everything uh in your picture everything to the right of the first focal point where you are when it shows objective assembly i think it was seven or eight lens elements just there <laughs> what so i'm just I'll, I'll break for a moment there why why do that well because you'd like to see well fundamentally um in practical terms what happens is that lenses are not uh, perfect, right? We cannot deliver a good enough image in terms of correcting for the aberrations, color aberrations, geometric aberrations, all sorts of weird image artifacts. We cannot do that with a single lens element. As of two, three years ago, some uh, uh, physicists at the university uh, in Mexico City actually uh, figured out a theoretical shape of a perfect lens, which is a really, really weird convoluted shape. But fundamentally what happens is that you take one lens element, and uh, you try to make it as well as you can with as precise of a shape as you can. And then you add a second lens element to correct for some of the aberrations of the first one. And you correct some of them and you introduce new ones. You add an another one to do some more corrections, etc. You know how they talk about a doublet, which means two lenses, a triplet, three lenses, and so on and so forth. Right. So that's just for the image quality stuff. Then you have the uh, uh size and packaging requirements and things like that uh, you can do let's say retrofocal designs where you can have a longer focal length in a physically smaller package you'd also do that using uh additional lens elements and then uh, if let's say you have a rifle scope we're talking about rifle scope you have sight focus what is sight focus sight focus controls where the objective lens forms an image and you want it to be right on the front focal plane where the reticle is right so for that, you need a couple more lenses that need to be moving front and back to do all those corrections, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you have this lens train, and you are working with trade-offs. Um, if you want it to be really, really perfectly correct, you need a lot of lens elements. A lot of lens elements are expensive. Aligning them is expensive. And if you don't assemble it well enough, all those extra lens elements are only going to be worse. And you're adding weight and complexity and other things, right? So it becomes a, an interesting compromise. Interesting. So to bring it back to this end, so I'm looking at here, I don't know how many lenses are in here, but so lenses in the front, and then there's an erector assembly. They're about here. 
uh, in front of the front focal plane, and that one probably about five lenses. Okay, so then as I as, so as I go through this zoom range, it's mm-hmm. effectively moving those in orientation with each other, and that's what's changing my magnification. The erector lenses, not yes. not objective lens lenses. Right. Yeah, the erector lenses. Correct. Okay. And then I have some number of lenses at the eyepiece. So this will be the... Three or four, usually. Three or four. So to make a rifle scope work, you have all those lenses having to work in concert with each other, which, as you said, adds complexity, adds weight to have that many lenses, um, which comes back to low-power variables. So, <clears throat> here's my my older ones, TR24. So this is one to four. It's one of the, one of the originals. One to fours got, became a thing. Would you say this is simpler on the inside than the other one, or no? Uh, slightly. So LPVO is actually not that straightforward to build. There's a reason why it took quite a long time to figure out how to make them. The one to four is not too bad, and on this one, the objective lens is probably comparatively simple. You don't have side focus, that kind of stuff. But uh, the eyepiece is the same as on the, any other design, so same level of complexity. And the erector, I mean, you have a four-time erector, so it's going it's going to be probably very similar complexity as your uh, Steiner P4XI, which is also a four-time erector. It's not identical, different companies, but it's probably going to be similar complexity. The objective is going to be simpler. Okay. That's good to know. And yeah, so this is, this is no side focus on it. So this is fixed parallax. Um, and then this is second focal plane. So going back to our, our diagram here, just to show that. So everybody is aware of this. First focal plane is up here in front of where the magnification happens, which is why as you zoom up and down, the reticle will shrink and grow with it. Second focal plane is back here, which is means it's happening after magnification has happened. So it's going to stay the same size relatively. It's going to, so um, let's, since you decided to bring out charts and stuff, let's talk <laughs> about uh, terminology. Okay. Right. Uh, what the scope sees is a field of view. What the eye sees in the eyepiece is the apparent field of view. So when you talk about reticles, front focal plane or second focal plane, right? The second focal plane reticle looks the same to your eye. So its apparent size does not change. Its actual size does because uh, the actual size is how it relates to the image that's coming in. Okay. And we're, I'm going to spend a lot of time digging into, into field of view because that is something that I am... I, I don't understand how 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 this works. So oh, that's um, very simple. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, well, it's it not simple. <laughs> I'm just trying to make Matt feel bad. It's sort of why I'm here. Well, this is why I was a dumb dumb Air Force officer, and you you went you went to engineering. You school. were aiming ballistic missiles at me. I'm still <laughs> sore about that. All right, so we we have to talk field of view now. So I want to understand um, field of view. Now, I think most of us understand this distinction between. Narrow field of view means, you know, at 100 yards, I see X amount of, of distance. So 2.9 degrees gives me like 19 point something feet at 100 yards versus something that's like 10 degrees gives me something like 50 feet at, at 100 yards. Um, how, how do we make that field of view happen in a rifle scope? Okay. Let's do this. Let's first redefine magnification because the way you were doing it is correct but useless. Uh, so, uh, because um, magnification, so focal length 
of an opt of an imaging lens is essentially inverse of field of view in a way meaning longer focal length means narrower field of view shorter focal length means a wider field of view but when we start talking about afocal telescopes and everything we've talked about right now um sort of falls under general type of afocal telescopes right and that's a um and it's an important phrase a focal means that it is designed to be consumed by human eye meaning a um, uh, it's a dvo direct view optic and the way it spits out the light out of the back end is different for a direct view optics versus for an imaging optic like a camera lens uh, for example so when we talk about dvo's direct view optics or a focal telescopes it's really useful to try to define everything in a uh, uh, what's a good way of saying this in terms of external parameters right think of it as try to think of it as close to a black box as you can right so that we don't spend too much time we will uh, later here but in terms of understanding what these things really mean you want to think about it in terms of what's outside the black box right um, in the technical terms, we talk about input-referred parameters and output-referred parameters, right? Output being just outside of things. So this is how you want to think about it. Mind if I switch to the whiteboard for a moment? No, by all means. I've come sort of prepared, maybe. So if you have your rifle scope, and I'll draw a very crude rifle scope. I'm not an artist. So this is objective, lights going in, lights going out. All right, your eye is somewhere here. Your eye gets some sort of a field of view out of the eyepiece. The scope gets some sort of field of view from whatever it's looking at, right? You with me so far? Got it. I'm gonna erase these arrows. Okay. So what the scope sees is called field of view. What your eye sees is called apparent field of view. The simplest way to think about magnification is that the ratio of this angle to this angle is your magnification. If the field of view getting out of the scope is exactly the same as the field of view going in, it's a unit of magnification. Okay. Is this making some sort of sense? So I'm going to ask the, the dummy question. So when you say, if your field yeah. of view out of it is the same as field of view in it, that's effectively no magnification. So that's a 1x. Uh, no, 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 no. It's unity uh, magnification. Okay. No magnification is when you're looking for a flat glass. So through a red dot site. Okay. Something like that. Following. Right. I, I, I had, to, I had to ask that question because you know somebody was thinking it. Uh, including me because I'm, I'm dumb. <laughs> okay. So okay. red dot so, optics like that. Right, so I'm going to go back to So that's your magnification. Now, in principle, all your business about focal lengths is accurate because the fields of view coming out and going in are defined by the focal lengths of all the stuff outside. Okay, but in practical terms, field of view is something you can feel, touch, and understand. While focal length that's inside, you have no idea what's happening in there, and you shouldn't need to know, really, unless you're particularly curious, right? Mm -hmm. You with me? Following, yeah. Okay. So there is a very, very important factor, though, here, right? 
So think about this. So magnification is the ratio of these fields of view. If you have very narrow field of view coming in and very narrow field of view coming out, it's still units you want. A magnification of one. If you have wide field of view coming in and wide field of view coming out, it's also one. Magnification has not changed, but what you see has changed dramatically. Okay. okay. This concept sticking in? Yeah, so far. And when we talk about prismatics, that's going to become very, very important. This thing, apparent field of view, is really critical for a lot of things. Okay? Okay. You with me? So field of view is genuinely defined in terms of degrees as an angle. Uh, one degree, five degree, ten degree, and you're right. A larger field of view in terms of degrees will allow you to see a larger linear size scene, linear size object at whatever distance. Right? You can think of uh, field of view in terms of degrees or in terms of milliradians or minutes of angle or you know, whatever unit is more appropriate, but degrees are degrees. Okay, so the apparent field of view is really, really important because when you know how you talk about some uh, scopes having this huge image in front of you, mm -hmm. remember we're talking about optics. When you're talking about size of anything, you're talking about angles, right? So huge image means large apparent field of view. Just to illustrate that, because we're going to bring this one up later, but here is a Swamp Fox Trihawk that I've been tinkering with, which has this massive, seemingly apparent field of view, 52 feet, yes, I think. So that's one of the things I want to ask is how, how, how does that degree field of view. Yeah. So how, how does, how optically, we're going to get to the prism piece of this. How? <laughs> what separates okay. this from something similar? We're going to get to the prism piece of it, but. All right. Know. Let's see. Well, okay. So here is a rifle scope. This is a, what is it? March four and a half to 28. Okay. Here is a Swamp Fox Sabre. Uh, it is their five power prismatic. Uh, eyepieces ballpark the same size, right? I don't know if you can see it well because they're kind of dark. And... Yeah, I can see, I can see. So I think that looks about right. Okay. So here's, I'm lining up behind the conventional scope this is how far away i am from the eyepiece right you know the distance this is where my comfortable eye relief is same size same diameter eyepiece approximately with a prismatic is this closer to my eye than the march scope was yes very much bingo this is what we call high school geometry even the air force guy should be able to figure that out but i'll <laughs> sketch it just in case So it is very upsetting when we have only one military person here. I work with the military for my day job. And the most entertaining parts of my job is when I can get Navy, Air Force, and Army in the same room trying to immediately ar immediate arguing about something, anything at all. Well, you've got so, two Air Force guys here. So you got me, and I see Dice Man in the comments. So here. Oh, great. I'm outnumbered. I'm st I still have you outweighed if you go by pounds. So, all right, let's say this is an eyepiece, right? With a conventional rifle scope, let's say the eye relief gets my eye here. My apparent field of view is essentially a triangle between the eye and the edges of the rearmost lens of the eyepiece. In a 
typical prismatic. It doesn't have to be, it just so happens that to make them this way. If your eye relief is half and your eye really sits here, this is my apparent field of view. Mm -hmm. This is significantly larger than this. Okay. So by nature, if, I, if I'm putting this into to my dummy terminology, which by the way, I see MLC in the comments too. So now we've got Marines. Uh, oh, Jesus. So given the same, we'll say the same kind of uh, diameter eyepiece there, the closer you get to that, then you get a wider apparent field of view. Not the closer you get, the closer, the shorter the eyepiece, shorter the, the eyepiece eye relief is. Okay, so shorter right. the eye relief. Eye relief is defined by the optics. If right. you just shove your eye closer, you know, it's not going to make for a larger field of view. It's defined okay. by the curvatures of optics. Right, right. So terminology matters. So, so the shorter the eye relief means apparent field of view is going to be wider. If you have a wildly obsessive personality like mine, terminology makes a big difference. All right. Good. So... I think I think I'm tracking here. So that that's that's how that works. And there's a phrase I thought I would never never say again that I'm tracking. All right. So we're going to get onto the prison piece of this because this is where it's going to be, um, where I think is interesting. So my theory, my working theory, is given this this piece here. I need to bring bring this back up. Given this piece here, it would seem to me that the focal length from the objective to wherever it converges is a big part of this magnification ratio. Mm -hmm. If you want to make a scope smaller, then you have to fake it. Basically, you have to find a way. Mirrors are one way of doing this. Um, but to me, looking at this prism design, the Schmidt, Schmidt Pichan, uh, I'm following the light. It's bouncing around. So in this relatively short amount of space here, you're actually faking like you've got more distance for it to travel before it comes back out the other end. So in an in an optic, you get your objective, and I borrowed this this graphic here from from TreasureCon itself is on their about history page. You can see the light path going in, hits this prism, and starts bouncing around until it pops back out. So have you basically faked the amount of focal length that you got at that point? So the phrase crayon eater is that specific to Marines? Yes, is a common practice among the Air Force as well. It is. It is Marines. We like to eat dry erase markers. All right. That's fair. As long as you don't sniff them, just swallow them whole. Uh, you're not faking anything. This is something called a folded optical path length. You're trying to, to fit a longer focal length optic into a shorter housing. And a very common way of doing this is by using reflective optics. So common lenses that we are all used to, they're called refractive optics. Right. And what refraction means is that you have a lens element and light goes through it. Okay, that's refraction. Reflective optics, as the name suggests, is basically a bunch of surfaces that for some re one reason or another reflect light rather than allow light to transition through this air to glass or whatever material uh, interface. Reflective optics can be mirrors or they can be prisms. The big reason people use uh, prisms frequently for this is that you can take a piece of glass and you can angle its sides in such a way that you have something called total internal reflection. What total internal reflection means is that if you have a plane of glass and you have light coming straight on, it'll just going to mostly go through a little bit. It's going to get reflected, but mostly it's going to just go through, right? If you want to minimize reflections, you put on coatings, etc. 
you can put on a coating to make it reflective as well. Now, if you start light coming in at an angle, as you go to more and more extreme angles, somebody will gonna get to some sort of an angle where beyond that angle, all of the light that comes in just reflects. It does not actually penetrate uh, the interface between air and glass. Well, slightly, there's something called evanescent waves, but that's not really uh, uh, critical here. And, and that is the exact phenomenon that uh, prisms use. They position, uh, they position different surfaces of the prism that most of the reflections are total internal reflections. The light just bounces off, okay? So it gets inside the prism. So first, uh, look at where your light path is on the left. There's a straight line where light gets in. Mm -hmm. uh, just walk to the prism and uh, stop. Flat interface here, light comes through the air to glass interface. Then it hits the first surface over there. Stop. Here, there's already total internal reflection. The angle beyond which you have total internal reflection depends on the indexes of refraction of the two materials, in this case, glass and air, right? So uh, you can calculate it by the ratio of those two indices. But in this case, you have mostly total internal reflection. Then you go down, bounce off again, then go up. Now you're going through a couple of air to glass interfaces again because you get into the second prism. Then you reflect again, go up to the top. There, there is a complex surface and that's where the reticle sits in the prism. So this is the one part of the prism. Notice the angle here is a lot more, a lot closer to the right angle compared to the surface on top. So mm -hmm. here you do not have total internal reflection. This is the coated part of the prisms. You know how it's more common with binoculars to talk about prisms being silver coated or multi-dielectric coated, whatever. This is a reflective coating that makes light reflect. But with prismatic scopes, that's also where the reticle sits. That actually introduces a couple of problems. Mm -hmm. And then it goes off, down, hits another surface. Now the total internal reflection again, no coatings, just that interface between air and glass is what makes it reflect and goes out toward the eyepiece. Okay. Is making some sort of sense? Yes. Excellent. So the next picture, because you mentioned actually the thing. So I actually borrowed this. This is a... Oh, there you go. So this is a drawing again from Trejacon of this, this optic here um, that I'm holding up and really lost the stream for a second. So if you can see it. So this is a, this is a Trijicon TA-110. So this is the LED version of the one on the graphic here, which is the TA-11. But basically this chart is the inside of this thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is where I thought it was interesting. You did point out that the reticle does sit on top. Actually, let me pick a different orientation here. And uh, notice- so the, the reticle is sitting up here. Yeah, see where there is a red thing where it says tritium lamp low light reticle magnification? Yep. Notice that the way Trijicon, and I like Trijicon graphics, Trijicon is occasionally a complicated company, but when they decide to put together a graphic, it's actually good. Um, notice that uh, the lines look like they're converging over there. They're converging on this point where it says tritium lamp low light reticle illumination, and then diverging again when it bounces off, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, right there. See? See the lines are kind of converging, then diverging again. Right. That little orange spot where it says tritium lamp, low light, reticle illumination, that's where the reticle is. That's the focal point. That is the focal point of both the objective and the eyepiece. Okay. And in this case, your magnification is the ratio of these focal lengths or also the ratio of the field of view and apparent field of view. Okay. Yeah. So the interesting thing is I was putting, like looking at this graphic, 
was actually was tracing the the orange and the black lines to, to exactly what you just said, which is they continue to get closer together, even though they're all bouncing around in this stuff. And you're right. I actually didn't catch the first time that they converge right at that, mm-hmm. that reflective point and then become diverging again before they hit the, I, the eyepiece. Okay. So that's been, so that's basically where we're using reflection to, to make that focal length longer than the body of the scope had available. So one of the things that people don't, that needs to be, it should be understood, and I'm never quite sure if it is, you see all these light paths that intersect each other in air, mm-hmm. okay? Light is electromagnetic radiation. Unless you're capturing it somewhere, bunch of different beams of light can be traveling through the same space and they do not impact each other in any way. It's not like streams of water that will start intersecting and splashing around. Okay. Light does not care unless you are capturing it, measuring it, uh, reflecting it, some, doing something in that place. If they're just traveling through air, they do not, the different beams do not impact each other in any way, shape, or form. That's why you can fold this optical pattern itself multiple times. Okay. You know, so I was, I actually was curious about that because I know there's the whole thing I've heard going back to high school chemistry about light behaves both as a wave and as a particle. In this case, yes, it's more like a wave. They give my background with the nuclear side of things. I mean, thinking about because there absolutely is interaction between gamma and X rays hitting hitting things. So but when they hit things, not when they're flying through the air together. See now, so I have, when now they're hitting I have, molecules, they're very very high energy particles. So yeah. they can actually excite some of the molecules in the air, no matter how uh, uh, inter- uh, widely interspersed they are. But they can only really interact with each other when they are hitting the same thing. Okay. I, I'm not going to argue on that one. <laughs> I'm so yeah, far removed so from, from how EMPs work and x-rays interacting to create blast waves that it's not, it's not relevant. Uh, okay. So now that we're up to this point, I'm going to stop on, on the graphic here because what I'm really interested in this next piece of this is um, what's wrong with this, with a prism? Like why, why would a prism not work for somebody? You know, aside from the, I think this is probably very difficult to actually make variable number one. You know, um, uh, it's uh, it's not impossible, but it's almost impossible. And true variable optic for you know human consumption with a true variable targeting optic for human consumption has not been made. Now variable optics with prisms in them are made um, all the time. Uh, I have one here. Let me grab it. I'll disconnect the IPS for just a sec. So for, for those of you all, and I'm, I'm going to read through the questions real quick. Anybody, I, we both, Il and I, have a bunch of optics behind us that we can, we're going to use for, for show and tell as we go through to kind of compare our different form factors and what's probably happening at various things and trade-offs. So it's going to get, we're going into the next piece of this. All right. Who knows what this is? I mean, it looks like a spotting scope. Exactly. What do spotting scopes do? They vary their magnification. And what do they have inside? They have a prism in there. But I've never seen a true variable uh, magnification rifle scope. I don't... I'm not 100% certain sure why, other than uh, that it would be somewhat difficult to ruggedize it uh, to withstand... Uh, to withstand recoil. So there was, 
maybe I'm thinking the wrong thing because in the Discord server today, I actually found a video that was eight, eight years old from Sandia National Labs where they were showing what they were talking was a, a different way of, it was changing the focal length. It was actually adjusting the size of the objective lens and sh- the shape of it to rebend the light, um, which seemed really interesting. And my thought on that one was that either never worked out because of durability problems or it did work out and they stopped talking about it. <laughs> uh, you're talking about deformable lenses where you apply electrical yeah. current and the shape of the lens changes? Yeah. The liquid lens? No, no, no. It, it works just fine. I mean, there's a continuing development on it. There are some commercial applications already. Oh, well, that's good to know. Okay. So I'm going to zoom out a little bit here so we can get full view. All right. So what I want to get into prism optics then. I know there's the... Sp- so actually... So I know there's the LCAN. This is not the switch magnification one. This is the fixed uh-huh. one that that before you ever knew me, you convinced me to buy. Um, but so... I've been spending it, other people's money for 20-some <laughs> years now. Yep. Um, so just for, for my curiosity then... How does that, the switch magnification work where you have the little lever? Is I assume it's just inserting a, another lens into there to change, to change Correct. something. Correct, yes. Okay. Yeah, that's all it's doing. So there's no real physical reason why you can't introduce some sort of a switch in magnification. But it becomes harder to, um, becomes harder to execute, harder to control. Um, Elkan has this little stage-looking thing in there that basically when you flip the lever, it either gets out of the way or there is an additional uh, lens uh, lens group introduced into the uh, optical path. And it's pretty hard to do. It's very hard to do this thing precisely. It's very hard to uh, make it so that it properly works. I mean, Elkin can kind of pull it off, um, but there are um, other limitations. And the biggest real reason is uh, why would you want to if it's if there's plenty of conventional variable scopes out there that work just fine and because everything is lined up linearly much easier to line up and ruggedize and all that sort of stuff mm. so i guess that's i guess that's one of the first trails last the the stereotype is that prism optics are more rugged but i think that's pretty much based on the reputation of the acog but I feel like reading the history of it, that that was actually the fear, was you, you were never going to be able to ruggedize it enough for a combat optic. That was one of the fears. Well, to be fair, that was the fear with prismatics. It was the fear with variable scopes. That was It's always the fear, and then we do it. So from your, from your, from your opinion, though, prism, is, it, is it easier to ruggedize a prism optic or a traditional linear one? I don't think it makes any difference. doesn't make a difference. Okay. So theoretically, in theory, because the prism is physically shorter, it's easier to make the housing more robust, right? Like smaller levers to press and things, that kind of stuff. So maybe it's a little bit easier from a purely mechanical standpoint. From the standpoint of ruggedizing the pieces and all that, I... If, so, I mean, if you take a good optomechanical design and ask them to make a four-power prismatic or a four-power uh, conventional uh, uh, rifle scope on roughly the same budget, I don't think you'll see any uh, difference in the recognition. Think about this way. How much did your ACOG cost? Uh, for about 1000 ballpark okay about a thousand dollars when's the last time you paid a thousand dollars for a conventional four power uh, rifle scope never excellent so uh i don't know if there are any still made but for a while there was some and right around the grand was i think schmidt and bender four by 36 and that's been used for hunting for a very very long time they had a four by 36 six by 42 
2006 power, I think, still made. Yeah, so I know, I know SWFA has a, has all well, this, it's in their catalog. So it's been forever. So, $1,000, you could for a long time buy a Schmidt for by 36. Ever heard of it breaking? No. Give a good optomechanical designer a target and a budget. And unless we're doing something very exotic, conventional rifle school, prismatic on the same budget will probably be similarly rugged. Now, if I am spending my money on a four power scope for an AR or some platform that allows you know that that mounting, I'm gonna take a prismatic over conventional every time, simply because it's shorter and, it, and that packaging allows me a variety of different things. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, I'm consulting for a company right now. It's gonna bring out a couple of interesting prismatics to the market. I'm really excited about this because the way they're packaged. And introduce some different features and all that and i got involved with it because it's a prismatic and it's kind of a cool thing i think that's going to open up some new avenues for fixed power scopes prismatics uh, offer a lot of advantages so that this is something i want to touch this, this goes back to my whole theory about why i think prisms actually are due for a comeback but we'll get to that one in a bit mm -hmm. um there's a question here Fat dark earth talks about what about the warner and swayze i don't even know what that is I used to know a guy the last name Warner. I never knew anybody in the name Swayze. Right. Patrick. Patrick Swayze. Uh sad was spelled differently. Warner and Swayze. This is a World War One era prismatic sniper scope. There we go. Well, they have been having efficacious sniper prismatic scopes. Uh Russians had one in the eighties, nineties that was seven power. Um, there are some prismatics in Europe, primarily used on air guns, but they'll uh, do things also for other things that are 7, 10, 12 power. Uh, there is no reason why you can't do high magnification with prismatics. But uh, if you're trying to maintain the field of view for which the prismatics are really uh, well known for and have a high magnification, they start getting heavy. So if you, uh, if you bring up, would you mind bringing up the diagram of a, a prismatic? Again, there you go. So uh, if you put the pointer on the prisms, it's a serious hunk of glass, right? And um, in the rifle scope, a lot of the weight comes not from the metals, which are much lighter than glass. It's from all the lenses in there, okay? So lenses are heavy. And when you start going... When you start going toward higher magnifications and uh, larger things, the size of the prism starts growing not only vertical, but also longitudinally because you need to maintain that geometry. And at some point, prisms get seriously big. So this 5X Swamp Fox Saber, because they wanted a really wide field of view, and for a good reason, this is 25 ounces. It's seriously heavy. Now, I can still make a very good case for it, and we can talk about that later. But if you're trying to go to high magnification and you want to maintain these really wide apparent field of view, um, you start losing weight advantages. If you have you ever used the Trigicon 6x48 fixed power? I've handled it. I've handled it. I've, Excellent. I, I, that, that thing's big. That thing is you big. Drop it on your foot. That's a cast yeah. right there. Yeah. So I guess that's that's actually where I want to get into. The, what are the, the trade-offs that we deal with when it comes to, to presence? Because I've got two... I'll use three examples in front of me. Okay, uh, Matt, I have to walk off for 12 seconds. I uh, just saw my kids run in the direction he's not supposed to. I'll be right back. <laughs> Got it.
All right. So um, while Ilya goes to do that, I'll go ahead and just go through some examples we're about to talk about. For the record, I can't hear you, but you can hear me. So I'm not going to yell at anyone. All right. So um, I've got three examples of three X prisms in front of me that I think represent a pretty interesting divide of like philosophy. So the first one is uh, this. This is a Trigicon TA33. It's my newest uh, ACOG. So this is a three by 30. And it's known for A, it's eye relief, which is, you know, significantly better than your average uh, ACOG, but also oh, yeah, the, three by, the three by 30. Yep. So it's also got a really narrow field of view though. Um, so I'm just going uh, to go through some of the examples. Of, that way, though. Yeah, I'm going to go through some of the examples that we're, that we're going to, we're okay. going to talk about. These cool. are all 3x magnification, which is why I wanted to bring them out as examples. Um, the next one is this. I already showed it. This is the Swamp Fox Trihawk. Significantly, it feels a lot heavier. Uh, I think this is like 14 ounces. Okay, my numbers wrong on that. Versus this one is nine ounces with mount. And then I don't have the actual scope version of it, but I've got the magnifier version of the primary arms SLX microprism. Um, I'm waiting to get my hands on the actual scope, the actual one to tinker with. Uh, all three of these have very different design philosophies, which is why I want to get into like what were the trade-offs that we were discussing, you know, to to go from one to the other. So I'm going to start actually with the with the ACOG, the three by thirty. So. Like I was saying, this one is known for its longer eye relief, but really narrow field of view. And I, I found a couple interesting things about that. But you had you were just about to say something about it, designed intentionally that way. I'm gonna let you flounder for a minute before I explain it. No, go for it. Oh, come on! Get so uh, here, here's, 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 I'll tell you what I found. What I found, yeah. I like this one a lot, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, but what I have found is it almost seems more like dealing with a magnified red dot. When I don't have that big apparent field of view in front of me, it's almost just bringing up and there's the reticle and I go. And I also noticed I'm faster with this than my other one. So all three X, but I'm nearly as fast at this as I was with an EOTech. You know, you're at, keeping at, both at, eyes open, right? With both eyes open. Okay. I will say this. If I was buying a modern high-end uh, Trigicon, uh, uh, prismatic at the moment, the only one I would consider is that one that Matt has in his hands. And here's the reason. Would you mind putting in front of you uh, to your eye and find the way your comfortable eye relief is? Turn sideways so that we could see where your eye is with respect yeah, to the scope, if you don't mind. Okay, move closer. Do you still see the full field of view or do you start seeing a black ring? Uh, hold on. I gotta... No, I still see the whole... I mean, I got full field of view all the way up until here. I, just, I start seeing more yeah okay and then start moving it away from your eye slowly you're not seeing the full field of view do you, are you seeing a large black ring around the uh, around the image or is uh, it still just a fairly thin eyepiece housing it's i'm seeing to it it seems like the edges are fading out just a, just a bit but just i'm mostly still seeing the housing so your effective eye relief so the, what this one is famous for and this is something uh, it's this is what you meant to say it's not what you said <laughs> It's not famous for its long eye relief. It doesn't have a very long eye relief. Relative, well, I was saying that relative to the other ACOX. Forgiving eye relief. Okay? Yeah, forgiving relative and, to the other ACOX. Correct. And that is actually a, a very big deal. Uh, 
optimal eye relief for it is still very fairly short actually when your eye is close to it that's actually the optimal eye relief as you start getting further away from you, you see slightly less field of view then the edges start fading out a little bit but the overall image fidelity is retained and the compromise for that is having a narrow field of view so eye relief flexibility and field of view are always in a tug of war with each other mm -hmm. okay of all of the different ACOGs, this is the one that's by far, by far the easiest to use if you have a helmet-mounted uh, night vision monocular. Mm. Yeah, you, you mentioned that. You mentioned that before. Yeah. So hold on one sec. So I, I have a night vision monocular coming. So here's a helmet, right? It's the monocular is hooked up to this bloody thing. So I've got this thing on my head. If I'm line up a conventional, okay, so here is, this is a Meprolite 4X, which is basically a copy of a 3G 4x32. This is where my eye needs to be, right? This is how my gun is set up. If I flip the uh, uh, monocular behind it, the scope is mounted to the gun. I can't move anything. To see anything, I have to do this. You can't do things that way. The 3 by 30 that you have, you can set up fairly far. It is not the optimal position for, for you to see through it, but it's good enough, and it can be far enough from you where you can flip down your monocular and still look through this thing. I, I have noticed watching videos of people using this one, or even pictures. Some people mount this way further down the rifle than I would. I still kind of shoot more traditional marksmanship style, but I guess that makes sense if, if that's the option. This oh, is the only prismatic you can do it with. Okay. Interesting. Now, to be fair, I do not know for sure if this is the reason Trijikon designed it that way, but it's the only one I could come up with. Mm. Yeah, so I'm not sure. So that basically means I'm probably right. <laughs> I mean, this thing, this, this thing came out in like, what, 2007? When these first started like coming that, out? Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. So anyway, I was going to go on. So that, that's this one. Now, the total opposite philosophy is the Trihawk which is here, it seems like where it's, I mean, the objective themselves, the objective is, is a lot bigger. So why, you know, philosophically, you could guess why the difference in the objective size or the, sorry, the IP size. IP size, objective lens is Object the same. Yeah, objective, they're both 30. So they're both three yeah. by 30. It's right. the, the IP side that just, the ACOG goes way smaller. So how does so that- So the diameter of the IPs, given the same eye relief just gives you wider field of view if you look through it the trihawk will have a much wider apparent field of view mm -hmm. much wider actual field of view as well you know given the same magnification but most importantly it will have this incredibly immersive image the way your vision works your brain is continuously processing whatever is coming into the eye and it is processing whatever you see uh, whatever you happen to see through the scope and whatever happened to see around the scope, right? So if you have a very wide, large apparent field of view, you see less stuff around it and your brain is able to just look through the optic and process that image. One of the reasons, for example, why comparatively inexpensive optics like the Swamp Fox are able to look so good optically, they look surprisingly good. Yeah, now, if you impressed. start digging into details, really looking at the resolution, they're still good, but they're not as amazing as you think on the first look. Yeah. It's because the image is so immersive. You are in it. It's like looking through a window rather than looking through a straw. It, it is something I have noticed about this one, comparing these two side by side, um, is that 
it's almost like it's a difference in philosophy almost like this one i I feel like this is this is really designed for to come up and i have a little bit of magnification and -hmm. it's easy to get behind it and take a shot this one feels more like i can sit behind this for a while and watch something correct much less eye fatigue and all that sort of stuff so i mean i guess that's the difference in philosophy and speaking of that Mm -hmm. um Diceman did have a question here comparing the three by 30 against the three and a half by 35, the TA, TA 11. So this one, this was, this one was after like TA zero once, this was like the early to mid nineties. I think I saw that GSG nine adopted this in like 1993 before it really showed up in the U S market. Um, so I actually don't know if there's much difference in design philosophy between this and this, so much as between this one and the original 4x one this one gave you more 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 eye relief at the expensive field of view so in terms of design philosophy your three and a half acog is actually closer to the swamp fox than to three by than to three by 30. it's just a high quality prismatic <clears throat> it's still designed for the battlefield so there is no adjustable ips that try to minimize all the stuff you can adjust as much as you can they were trying to give you better low light performance. They were trying to make it much easier to get behind than the original 4X. And they were trying to make it, um, and they were trying to make it, uh, yeah, pretty much just more, more flexible. They dropped the magnification slightly and increased the eye relief so that the field of view is actually very close to the original 4X, mm-hmm. right? Because they wanted to see about as much, but they just wanted it to be easier to get behind it. It's also a little bit uh, heavier because they had to make the eyepiece larger diameter, right? So it's a heavier scope than the four power than the original four power. So uh, here's a question because I, I went back and watched one of your videos uh, where you I think it was about a year I'm ago. Sorry. <laughs> you, you did a video about prismatic optics and you were talking about, hey, if you want to have more field of view, then you need a bigger prism. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but you also just said you, you also need a bigger eyepiece. To, to, mm-hmm. So is it, so those things have to work in conjunction with each other. I'm assuming that like it's. Oh, I'll go get your diagram back up. Yeah. Uh, not this one. Yeah. That one. All right. So see from the left side where the eyepiece is. Right. The lines that go through the eyepiece they have to go through the prism as well. Right. And if you have a larger and the way they drew, they have these uh, rays going through the center of the eyepiece, but they're really going all the way through to the edges. Right. So mm-hmm. imagine a line from the edges that's convert that needs to converge at the same point. You just have larger angles. Okay. Right. If larger diameter eyepiece, the angles get even more severe. The prism needs to be start getting needs to start getting even larger to accommodate all of that. So so another way of me simplifying that down is that the the field of view is determined a lot by the eyepiece, but to get the larger eyepiece, you need the larger prism to go with it, which is just going to increase weight all around. In many ways, yes. But it daisy chains from there, right? You need to start, uh, you know, everything is interconnected. Mm-hmm. Both the objective and the eyepiece have to match the prism in a reasonable way of some sort. If you just make the uh, you know eyepiece larger, right, you decrease your apparent field of view, You've also increased them. If you haven't changed the objective, you also increased the magnification. So now you're going to start changing the objective and everything daisy chains from there. Okay. But bottom line is if you want wide field of view with higher magnification, you basically are going to end up making for a larger prism. Okay. So then I guess the next one. So this is the, the little primary arms um, SLX. Mm-hmm. 
Um, which again, you're an interesting thing to me. Oh, I guess this now is making more sense because if I hold up the eyepiece ends of the here, mm-hmm. let me try to tilt it up, you can see it better. So ACOG, it is slightly smaller, but not by much. Mm-hmm. But this one has a lot more a lot more field of view on it. I think mm-hmm. this one's like 38 feet, at least the, the scope version of it is. Correct. This is the magnifier. Um so I'm trying to in trade-offs on this. I'm I'm wondering, is this just because prism technology has advanced? in 13 years or, or is it something that I'm missing about the, the trade-offs? So remember this exercise we just did with you moving the ACOG closer and further mm-hmm. away from your eye? Right. Can you repeat that with the primary arms? Sure. All right. So that's where, that's where I get it. That's the, and then, yeah, if I move I mean that eye box is not forgiving. <laughs> uh, well, it's actually quite forgiving. Well, relatively right, it's to the as forgiving as a 3 by 30 because a 3 right. by 30 has an incredibly forgiving eye box. And the trade-off is the field of view. Okay. So since the 3 by 30 ACOG was designed, between then and now, the laws of physics did not change. <laughs> Got it. Okay. So physics, the physics or physics? The manufacturability of stuff has, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, we'll talk about probably uh, yeah. your show. You can take it where you want. You nope. can talk about the value proposition of all of this. We could have a nice conversation, but the performance of the Swamp Fox or the primary arms or the, you know, the, uh, the it's just a 5X Speedfire from Vortex and the, uh, I have a few here, the 3X from Burrs, which you're getting with this new crop of prismatics. This performance for three, 400 bucks did not exist ever. This is new. So manufacturability, ability of primarily Chinese OEMs, and there are at least two that I can think of that are doing this, uh, their ability to do this has increased exponentially. So uh, actually, this is a topic I want to get into. I only got one other one that's about reticle, reticle colors and designs, but uh, I can wait for a moment because that's another question. But oh, I remember you said this a while ago, that given the choices available today, if you were spending your own money and telling people to advise them, you wouldn't necessarily advise them to go this route anymore between Elkans and ACOGs when the manufacturability yeah. of the, more, the less expensive ones has gotten so good. Yeah. And don't yeah. misunderstand, my favorite uh, prismatic of all time is still that Elkan that Matt just had in his left hand. I, it's sitting on a gun, I don't have it here. It's still my favorite, it totally rocks, it totally kicks ass, and if I was buying one now, I would not spend the money. So, um, now, I, I, I'm not going to lie, like, like, yeah, you said the Trihawk, I've had this, I took this out to the range the other day, I, unfortunately, I failed to zero it before I took it out to the, the long range, and, and it didn't get to really enjoy it. But looking through this, I was impressed. The optical quality seemed really good. Clarity and the resolution was really good. But I can see where some of the trade-offs are. Like, why does it cost less? Like, and I'll write about those when I do my review on it. Um, you know, things like the way the illumination is handled versus like my LED ACOG is, is you know, not, not as clean or the mount. But um, I mean... <laughs> this is nice. <laughs> like for, for, for $280 that these things charge on their website, mm-hmm. it's like, that's a, the, 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 guess the jump from, from $300 to a thousand dollars doesn't necessarily seem like you're getting $700 extra worth of stuff. I'm with you. Now, now start part of that. And this is, you know, not, it's not going to Trigicon, but this is the same thing. They're Trigicon. They've got that name behind them and their government contracts and everything. So, um, 
I, I am looking for that. What is on that middle ground? <laughs> like, is there something that's in between the $300 and $1,000 that also was really compelling? And I haven't, I found uh, a couple yeah, options, but they're not worth talking about. Give me six to 12 months. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm wondering. All right. Um, so there's a couple other comments that came in. So uh, someone said that the, uh, SLX is like a miniature TA-11 in terms of comparison to the ACOG. Uh, TA-11 is which one? That's the three and a half. Three and a half. Uh, sure. It's more like an improved 3 to 24, 3, TA-50, but sure. Yeah, yeah that's one I, I have not gotten much time by. Now, I, think yeah, the- I actually used to have the one and I sold it. I did not like it. Now I think I can't remember. I actually think the three by thirty came out first, and then they came out with the three by twenty-four. But it has not done as well. Uh, I don't think so. Three by twenty-four was a, is a line of the compact ACOG, and I want to say it was there before the three by thirty because I sold it after I saw the three by thirty. Okay, I could be wrong. Maybe I think with Jim. But I could be wrong. Yeah, I, it doesn't matter. All right, next topic I want to get into is about reticle color because this is something I see debated all the time about what color should I get? And I get the question because, I mean, if these things are going to cost $1,000, most people aren't going to go buy and sell three to find the one that was the best color for them. They're going to have to, like, have to guess. So I, I have spent now time, this one is green illumination, not fiber optic, but at least it's green illumination. My 3 by 30 this is one of the last remaining ambers. This is the amber horseshoe. Um, they don't even make these anymore. I just got it. It was, it was sitting around at Euro Optic and I grabbed it. And then I've got a bunch of stuff with red illumination. So uh, I have questions about this, though, because I have what my observations have been so far about what I think makes sense. But I want to run it by you. You're the engineer. Sound good? No, but I'll suffer. <laughs> my wise answer, it just you know, comes out. I that is it. perfectly fine. All right. So I, I have this chart here showing... Uh, the visible spectrum. So for, for people who are watching this or listening to it later on, the left side of this, that's getting into your ultraviolet, uh, which is higher energy. So the numbers down there, as they decrease, that's, that's a shorter wavelength, indica- indicating that's higher energy. Uh, as it goes to the right, you get less energy, and that's getting towards red than infrared. So I don't remember if it's urban myth or not, but I feel like I remember hearing that the original fiber optic versions of, of the ACOGs were amber. Mm-hmm. And, right. and I believe that's the same thing that, uh, uh, wrong slide showing. Oh, we'll come back to it. You see the right slide, right? It's the color. I don't spectrum. know what is the right slide. It's a rainbow slide. There's no right. Yeah, the rain, rainbow left, slide. I guess, if it's in the rainbow, but, um, somebody says they're still looking at the ACOG internals. Interesting. One second. So you try that one again. I, I see the spectrum. All right. Well, I just closed it and brought it back. Let's see what happens. Um, but anyway, like just to, to illustrate then, if you all still can't see it, Amber, I feel like that was the one they picked because it's nearly in the middle of the visible spectrum. Uh, so it's going to be easier. I think that would be easier to see. And my kind of thinking on there is that it shows up in lots of places, like the color that you paint school buses or caution signs or amber caution lights on cars, that amber is easier to pick up relative to other ends of the spectrum. Um, true or false? Uh, so 
I don't know how to address this one because it's wrong in so many ways. I don't know what to say. <laughs> Have you ever seen uh, a plot of something called the eye sensitivity function? No. No. Okay. So middle of the spectrum, left side of the spectrum, right side of the spectrum, from the standpoint of the spectrum, I don't think that makes any uh, real uh, practical difference. Um, the way human eye sensitivity works uh, is you're, we're more sensitive in the green, right around 535, 540 nanometers, right in the middle of the green. And uh, because that is the color our eyes are most attuned to. Mm -hmm. And anything to the left or to the right of that, just below 550, more like 535, 540. Okay. Yeah, right around there. Uh, anything to the left or to the right of that, our eyes are less sensitive to. We still see it, uh, but not necessarily... Uh, quite as well. Um, the choice of the original illumination, nobody knows for sure how it was chosen, but chances are they chose it before we started fighting wars in the desert. Mm -hmm. Okay. Probably because uh, uh, previous serious engagements we had were mostly in places with lush green vegetation. And they thought that something that's not green will probably stand out a little bit better, but they still wanted it to be somewhere near the peak sensitivity of a human eye. And they just moved a little bit to the right from green. That's my best guess. Okay. Okay. The red illumination, which is the more traditional illumination color, is generally there because if you modulate it properly, it doesn't screw up your eye's night adaptation as much as uh, green does. Mm -hmm. Because when your eyes transition from the photopic to the scotopic uh, vision regime, we, from cones to rods, rods have very little sensitivity to red light and more sensitivity to blue-green. Okay. So your eye sensitivity changes depending on ambient light. With cones, when you have proper color vision, it's in the 535 or so nanometer range, that's the peak. In uh, uh, scotopic vision regime at night, uh, it's a little bit lower. It's closer to uh, 500, a bit, even a little bit less. Okay. Interesting. All right. So just a couple observations I've had playing with the amber, by the way, just to kind of mm -hmm. talk through where it could to kind of piggyback what you said about before we fighting, start fighting in the desert. So what I found, and I live in Northern Virginia, so there's a lot of greenery around me or brown stuff. The contrast this produces is nuts. I mean, it's like a blazing little orange sun. I could probably angle it to the camera. I can see that. Probably not. That's awkward. Anyway, whatever. Get it closer to the camera. It's going to be easier. Yeah. Uh, kind of. I just it. saw it there. Yeah, there you yeah. go. So anyway, the contrast this produces against almost everything is nuts. It's really bright. What I have found really interesting, and I saw actually some, some law enforcement complaining about this with Amber in particular, is that, when when this is outside in sunlight, not, like I don't I don't I don't think I would ever lose it, ever. Like it's just really bright. When the light starts going down, uh, especially like if I go outside right now because it's it's dark outside. If I look at anything that's illuminated with a with a warm color, white light mm -hmm. or sodium lighting, that reticle disappears. Yep, it just vanishes. Um, and I, and what's, what it kind of sucks is with the fiber optic is, you know, historically, if you have like illumination, you cover the fiber optic and that makes it black, but with the trinium in there, it's still illuminating it just enough that 
I still lose it. Um, which I think that's why it had issues. You know, now the green on the LED one, let me turn this on, which by the way, I really like how Chichicon handled the illumination in, in these, in the LED mm-hmm. ones. Um, it's really kind of, kind of get it in there, but that's halfway. Uh, but I never, like I, I actually have seen the same thing can happen with this if I have low illumination and look at something green. So if it's daylight and I and I have the illumination turned like low, like setting two and pointed at a green tree, yeah, it fades. I lose that contrast. But if I turn the power up, no problem. And then at night when it's low light, well, nothing's green anymore. Everything turns black. So green will stand out to me. It's something I just, I've noticed. Now red which my Elecan has red, that pretty much works all the time. That's my observation. Like I've never had a situation where red failed to contrast against something, which is why I think it got popular. Um, no. No. <laughs> okay. It got more popular because the first good quality LEDs were made were red. We didn't know how to make green or blue ones yet. Okay. I mean, that... that, that. It just happened to... Coincidentally, it also happens to be a very good color choice. I like uh, red illumination over all others as well. Uh, but uh, it just so happens LEDs are a comparatively new technology and the first uh, visible ones were made were red. Now, I will say my favorite illumination is is green. That is my favorite one so far. It's just for me experimenting all these things. Red seems to work the most consistently. Green always works as long as it's got enough power. Amber would do the same to me, but I think the fiber optic is what kills it. So anyway, I was just curious about the, the color piece of this. So um, the way it so my, my, my angle here is slightly different because I make a part of my living by designing radicals for people. Mm-hmm. And I don't like to rely purely on illumination if I can help it, especially with conventional rifle scopes where the battery life is not measured in tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of hours. So my basic take on it is that I need illumination that's going to be first optimal in low light, second help in ultra bright light, but in anything that's not ultra low light, I want the radical features, the etched features, mm-hmm. to be sufficient to let me aim. And I can't have the illumination and interfere with that. One of the reasons I have mixed feelings about fiber optical illumination, I can't turn it off. Mm-hmm. Where then normally etched radical, you know, would work well for me and, and stuff like that. Because of yeah, that, I have, I struggle a little bit with green illumination because it works great during the day, especially where I live. I live in New Mexico, it's freaking desert. But at night, if the manufacturer didn't manage the illumination levels well enough, it would destroy your night adaptation very, very rapidly. Okay. And uh, I can count on one hand the number of green illuminated radical I've seen that were done properly for low light. And it won't take all the fingers. (laughs) So basically, overall, on balance, I have no use for green illumination at all. I can deal uh, with amber or red. Um, another thing to keep in mind is if you are colorblind or have astigmatism, uh, amber is generally going to be usually a little bit better for your eyes. So the, the amber with astigmatism is, is interesting. I do have astigmatism. It's not it's not bad, but I... Yours is very mild, so is mine, so it doesn't make a huge amount of difference, yeah. but it will play with astigmatism a little better. Uh, but I do know, so my astigmatism really shows up, aside from just a little bit of fuzziness of detail of things, it really shows up looking at illuminated radicals against dark backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
I like I I don't have a problem with aim points and and hell and EOTEX. I see everything just fine. But when I look at almost any rifle scope that's illuminated against dark background, it gets really blurry for me. Interesting. And I will say, I still see it. I still I'm looking out look at a darkened window, and I still see it with the amber. But it's not bad. I also I mean maybe I'm imagining it. I didn't feel like amber bloomed as bad for me when I was in full sun. Uh, that's uh, that's one of the. Yeah, one of the artifacts of how your eye focuses light. Okay. Uh, but the big part of it is that it's uh, it's easier for a little bit easier for your brain to process because uh, you're engaging both red, uh, both red and green cones. Okay. Well, I don't want to go too much far down that rabbit hole. So I did have a couple of things that were, we'll, we'll save for later. They're like, if we need them, there are pictures of different reticles, but reticle design is always interesting. What I really want to get to is my working theory here of. So let's see what else I can ruin. Well, I, I want to make sure we open up for questions too. So anybody who, who's, who's watching, I'm going to make sure we have time for questions because I've got me about 20 minutes left. Um, all right. I have a theory that most people in most circumstances, like don't like if I have, if I'm taking one of my, my rifles off the wall back there and it's just a general walking around rifle. I don't need 10x. I don't need one to 10. I don't need a one to eight. I mean, it's nice to have. I'm wrong. It's nice to have, uh, but I'm probably not walking around with it on 10x or 8x. Uh, and I could save myself a good pound of weight if I went to something a bit more compact like this or the, the primary arms with an offset, an offset red dot, especially people who are running a one to eight, one to 10 with an offset red dot anyway. And I think that's, that's, probably a better fit for the average person unless they have a special need where they know they're going to need to go. They need that extra weight or the different reticle design. I don't know. This is where I think we're going. So it's generally a perfectly reasonable point, uh, although a lot depends on your budget, weight budget and money budget. Uh, I will point out a couple. I'm genuinely on board with you when we are staying on the budget. That's one of the reasons I really like this new crop of prismatics. The way I use a scope, I very strongly lean uh, toward front focal plane designs, even with low power variables, which mandates uh, high quality illumination. And um, there is no such thing uh, at the moment on the market as a front focal plane low power variable under thousand dollars that in my opinion is worth buying at least it's good enough by my standards and then picky but there is such a thing as a 300 prismatic that's good enough by my standards <laughs> and here's a fun thing right I use the reticle for a lot of things, so I dislike second focal plane low power variables. People use, say, oh, I only use them on one power if it's, let's say, one to six. On one power or on six power. I always end up with some intermediate magnif magnification. The reticle means something else every time. I just don't want to think about it. And this immersive image that you get from prismatics, like the Trihawk, is not something that modern low power variables can replicate. Now, if they were designed for that, they could, but they're not designed for it and they uh, you know, make it with something else in mind. Mm -hmm. Okay. That makes a really big, uh, that makes a really big difference for me. 
as far as an average shooter doesn't need or does need this is a discussion that honestly we really shouldn't have uh, ever since uh, Jeff Gerwich mm-hmm. who you know like obviously I did this video I'm trying to remember uh, I think you actually talked about it you mentioned it and I saw it where don't prepare for a particular scenario or something like that mm-hmm. okay it was an extremely well put and the basic point is that you haven't the foggiest bloody idea what you're going to run into. Mm-hmm. So you figure out what your budget is and you come up with the most flexible setup you can get for that budget. That's basically as simple as it gets. And uh, we can have a nice argument about this, but you're going to lose if you're going to try to tell me that the nice three power prismatic is as flexible as a nice one to 10 power oh, front oh, focal yeah. blade Razor Gen 3. No, not going to argue that one. I, I absolutely, I absolutely believe a good variable optic, power variable is huge amounts of flexibility correct what it comes back to me is that weight budget how much of my weight budget am i willing to sacrifice to get that exactly right and but the moment you start trying to figure out how much weight budget am i willing to sacrifice you will immediately jump into different scenarios and say that oh for anything i'm going to encounter it's just not worth it you're basically discarding that 800 yard shot that you will you need the one to ten to make and what is the probability of you and I will ever have to make one of those in anger? Approximately zero. But the moment we say that, we are going counter to Jeff's original point. Mm-hmm. You do yeah. not do not prepare for anything specific. Okay. Right? Yeah, on the 800-yard, uh, separate conversation another day that actually would be really it's interesting to have. Um, about- However, if you have 600 bucks to spend, I would much rather buy $300 prismatic with an offset $300 red dot than a six hundred dollar low power variable. Hmm. Okay, that's uh, that works for me. Uh, question came in. So first off, I'm going to go in reverse order here. Dice man, um, which did the green reticle work well enough for low light use? Oh, three chicken on a ten mile has one on a like on a long range scope. Um, I think one of the green illuminated LED ACOGs was not bad there were a couple of others but basically you know on the on all of the comparative and expensive one the only ones i saw where it was good enough for low light use is when they designated that setting as night vision only it was too bright for night vision but it was low enough for using with the naked eye yeah and, and this goes back to what i mentioned this one's this one's the green and the way they handled the illumination this is really good like the this is yeah. again the, coming back to the trihawk the way this one handles illumination is okay Correct. It's okay. It's not as good as a trigical. Uh, objectively, um, Swamp Fox Trihawk is not a, as good as a uh, three-power uh, prismatic from trigical. It in on technical merits, it really only has one advantage, meaning the adjustable eyepiece. And you know, Matt is younger than I am. But give it a few years, we will all need adjustable eyepieces. I mean, it, but that's a design choice. Right. I, I've, I've been shooting with corrected lenses anyway. I have inserts in my in my shooting glasses just to yeah. take advantage of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, right. Trigicon uh, or Alcan are objectively better optics. They are also objectively three, four, five times more expensive. <laughs> yeah. And once you get in that price range, I can make a really nice argument for high quality front focal plate LPVO 
because even weight-wise, you're not no longer giving up that much with something like the primary arms and the new compact one to eight by twenty-four. Well, that's that was my argument. Still some, but not that much. Like that's been my argument too. Honestly, was was yeah. that like this? As much as I like this, all together, this is twenty-three ounces. Mini red dot scope mount. Take something like the SAI one to six. Yep, another excellent design. You know, take and which is what I think that's eighteen ounces. Yep. Add, add seven, eight ounce mount. You know, all right. I have. I'm only gaining like not a lot of weight there for a lot more flexibility. That's where the weight budget question to me starts coming in. It's weight and price. They're not decoupled from each other. Yeah. Once you're spending a serious amount of money, how much weight are you really saving, and is it really worth it? All right. Um, actually, before I get to this question, Diceman had to follow up about. Does the primary arms come in green? I do believe it does. I do believe have a green. I think they do. I don't know if they have it in all models, but um, it wouldn't surprise me if they propagate it across different uh, product lines. All right. So flat dark earth question here. And I think this is interesting because from what you said, you might have been involved in this recently. Yeah. I'll have to take the fifth because what I think (laughs) is going to be really good is coming. Okay. I'm going to be curious about that one then. So I'll bring that back up for a moment. It'll be fairly quick. This is a very open-ended question, and my obsessive compulsive personality rails against open-ended questions. If I could design a prismatic rifle optic for what use? AR-15s, service rifle competition, general purpose home defense, for what use? Because the answer uh, uh, will be different, right? Uh, add some specificity, and I'll try to uh, address it. But as is, I don't know where to start. I think for me, if I was trying to come up with like what is a good general purpose optic configuration, and this may not be possible, I'd be I would say something between three to five x magnification fixed, with a ability that I could piggyback a red dot on it, but not the offset. Offsetting is fine, but I like piggybacking. Uh, and I want less than 16 ounces with the mount. Okay. So basically, you just described the 4X Alcan with an adjustable eyepiece, which would be pretty close to an Atoy. Yeah, I mean, I'm wrong. Inside. But I exactly. want, like, this is, this is, this is really good. <laughs> that's that's as, as close to perfection as I've seen. Yeah. I, just, I would really like an adjustable eyepiece. But, um, but, but yeah, so the, actually, the other thing that stands out to me is that's the speed question. You know, I, I, for general purpose, I feel like I, I oh, actually, I measured this at least at seven yards. You commented on it when I posted my results. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am objectively faster at close range, like across the room distances as the magnification goes lower or the, the field of view gets narrower. You're faster if the field of view is narrower? At least oh, well, that also might've been the eye box, particularly on that egg on the, on the oh, T33. So I need another three X one to compare. I think it's ease of getting behind the scope. Now there was one actually one question that came out of that one though was foria, uh, and this is more of a general optics question that came up. At least I think that's the right phrase. Where if I'm looking if I'm looking at a target in the distance, both eyes open, and I'm doing the bend and aiming concept, mm-hmm. right? So I'm looking with my left eye, my non magnified eye, and bringing this illuminated reticle onto the target. With this one, with its much narrower field of view. I was much closer to what I was actually aiming. I was almost right on what I was actually aiming at. With this one, I was six inches to the right. And that was across the room. At, at like 50 yards, this was like six feet to the right. And this one was like still really close. Mm-hmm. 
I don't understand how that works. <laughs> What's the difference one, between these? So one was further from your eye. Yeah, that would be this one yeah, was further. The from inside the picture was fairly different. Uh, mm. Chances are your dominant right eye was seeing around the scope uh, enough. Okay. But also, there is a really, it's a really, really good chance that uh, the more brightly, more prominently illuminated reticle in the trigicon is what was really helping you. Okay. Interesting. I, I, I had one I had... of the fastest close range things I've ever used is this. And I can't see through this thing at all. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Armson, classic. Yep. I can use this thing really fast. If, right. But I don't have Fourier, right? So I can use this bin the aiming concept pretty well and even better with the, with, the, with the Armson. And one of the things that's interesting is that with the Armson, I'm, I'm a precision guy at heart. So my natural tendency is to slow things down and rather than shoot your center of mass, hit a particular eyelash on your left eye, right? That's This is what my natural tendency is. With the OEG, all of that flies out the window. I actually run the gun faster because there is no tendency to try to slow down and make a perfect shot. Mm, yeah, but you should get that little extra standard. Yeah. Uh, I know there is a technique people will do with these. Which are, I mean, put the lens cap on there or something where you yeah, can't I, look I, through it. I use precision scopes that way. In low light, if you want to go fast with a precision scope, close the objective to your own elimination. Yeah. I know it's also a, a common way to train transitioning to pistol red dots is to, to break the habits that you've developed and actually cover up, cover that up, cover oh, up really? the, uh, yeah. All right. Uh, another question here with upcoming prisms, are there any that use common batteries? So the one that I, and this is this one, use double A's. I know both the led ones. I really, I was really hoping Trigicon would make an led version of this, but you know. So the swamp Fox, the five power, the saber, I think it's a CR one, two, three. Yes. This one's a, a CR one, two, three, same as my flashlights. Yes, that would be probably the same. All of the smaller ones use 2032 batteries. Um, I'm sort of ambivalent about AA, AAA, etc. But as a general use, uh, I want everything to use either coin cell 2032s or CR123s. I never want to see any other battery on any optic if I can help. I, I, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot to be said for using common batteries. I know my my Aimpoint M5. One of the reasons I like that is it uses a AAA. Like it's easy to find. Um, but yeah, I agree. I, I prefer to like narrow down to very common batteries. Like if I can get CR123s, like I have intentionally avoided flashlights that I know objectively are going to use be brighter, but they use mm -hmm. a different battery cell than what I stockpile. Yeah. It's not, it's not so much stockpile. It's what do I have in my range bag? Yeah. Right. Well, what do I keep handy? Like I keep a little yeah. container of, exactly. of, I mean, I have behind me a drawer with, I don't know, 300 batteries of all sorts. Probably. I don't have it with me at the range. So why a 2032 and a CR-123? I mean, this is probably what we just said. It probably comes down to... Uh, a lot of it is just commonality. Um, 2032s are still the most common, although 1632s are becoming quite common. Those are less important because in the red dot size because the LEDs have become so efficient. Uh, CR-123s because they're physically shorter. So one of the things I don't like is longitudinally mounted batteries like the Swamp Fox does, like your... ACOG does, or they depend on spring tension to maintain contact, and eventually it's going to crap out on you sooner or later, but it will. Yeah. CR123s are shorter, so if you're going to be coming up with something clever, it's much easier to make a transversely mounted battery like a lot of thermals do. Yeah. 
who's my EOTech transverse exactly. CR123. Uh, original ACOG that had longitudinally mounted the AA's uh, eventually developed problems because the contact in the battery depends on the spring tension and recoil. If you orient the battery in the same direction as the recoil, eventually it will crack out. It may take a long time, but I really don't want to be guessing when that's going to happen on me. Uh, another thing is that I want... So with AA's and AAA's, there are now lithium batteries. All alkaline batteries will eventually leak whether they it doesn't matter if it says leak proof they all leak lithium batteries don't you want to ruin your thousand dollar a cog with a leaky double a see i went to threes i can't accidentally uh, shove an alkaline battery in there it's all lithium yeah yeah uh, that's it that's a good point don't want to make don't want to mix them up i do keep, stick to lithiums but not for everything all right any other i don't put lithiums in kids toys i don't mind if those leak <laughs> no, yeah, those make some, those make enough noise. I kind of hope they do leak and destroy it. I've gotten rid of some really annoying ones that way. All right. Um, any other questions? Otherwise, we'll wrap this up. All right. Well, I'll, while we're waiting, anybody else to come in? Elliot, as always, it's a pleasure. Um, Thank you. Uh, love having you around because you're like my go-to expert to get to bounce ideas off of and tell me why I'm wrong or I'm misunderstanding something because I'm not going to lie what you what you told me tonight is especially about the amber reticle it's it just makes going to make me delete like two-thirds an article that I was just writing so goodbye <laughs> all right I got to ruin somebody else's life's work yes not that much no, maybe not two-thirds but it was it's probably uh, it's, gonna... it's always fun I do appreciate you inviting me and I hope you able to tolerate myself occasionally odd sense of humor uh it's it's well it's not fair. that occasionally really but uh it's all it's all i've got so so if uh, anybody wants to be able to find you let's um where, where are they gonna do that darklordofoptics.com is my uh, website and generally if you do a search for dark lord of optics my youtube channel and all that sort of stuff is going to uh, come up the website, darklordofoptics.com, does have a paywall if you want to comment and ask questions and that kind of stuff. I found that I have to have a paywall to do some basic uh, filtering in order not to have the mudslinging that happens at all the normal forums. Uh, but uh, other than that, I do uh, live shows usually a couple times a month on YouTube and Facebook. And I'll take whatever questions you guys have. The way those usually start, I have a pre-prepared speech, and then we open it up to Q&A. Matt has visited with me a couple of times. Oh, and um, looking forward to that again sometime. Uh, absolutely. Pick a topic and uh, come on over. I'm beginning to look a lot more into electro-optics. Tomorrow, I'm probably going to do a show on a couple of different thermals. I have a 35 millimeter Steiner S35 here. And uh, where is that one? And a bearing optics thermal, that's a 35 uh, millimeter Super Yorta, or which one is it? Yeah, the Super Yorta. So tomorrow I'm going to uh, talk about these. But otherwise, like I said, Dark Lord of Optics, search for that, and I'll pop up like Beetlejuice. All right. Cool. And thanks for joining. So, and everybody, thank you for joining. If you have not yet, I would appreciate if you commented, liked, hit that subscribe button, hit the bell. I don't ask for very much. And just come by the website, everydaymarksman.co. They're going to find uh, the repost of this video, as well as any additional notes and our awesome community of marksmen, which I see a lot of people in the chat from the Discord server. Thank you all for coming out. As always, it's been a pleasure hanging out with you. And with that, we're going to go ahead and 
say goodnight. So, 